Morning, church. Let's turn our attention now to uh, the Word of God. We do have sermon notes available uh, for you each week, generally here at Southside. Uh, do any of you need sermon notes? Would you just uh, slip up your hand? Yep, we have some folk that do. So ushers, if you can uh, grab some of those sermon notes and just leave your hand up, and we will get you those. But as Pastor Michael mentioned, today our verse-by-verse verse journey through the book of James continued. The first message was back in 2010, so we're making some really rapid progress, but we're getting there. In the first three-plus chapters, uh, James has been telling us over and over and over again that while faith is invisible, it can always be seen. Although faith is invisible, it can always be seen. That's the theme we've been dealing with these past years as we've looked at this book. We've learned that genuine faith, and in the book of James, we also learn that there is faith that is not authentic and not genuine, but genuine faith will always produce good works and wisdom. It will always produce good works and wisdom. Now he continues the thought that genuine faith can also be distinguished by our dialogue. Genuine faith, which is invisible, but is always seen, can be distinguished by our dialogue. Faith can be heard, in other words, uh, by our words. The way we use our tongue is a constant theme with James. In fact, he mentions the use of our tongue in every single chapter, the five chapters of his book. In the original text of today's passage, James uses the word brothers, brothers, uh, sisters, has been added. I don't think that's a violation, depending on your translation. Uh, but he starts with the word brothers. In fact, three times in the original text, in the first few words of this passage this morning, three times he uses the word brothers. Why? He wants to remind us that we share a family relationship with other believers. We are the family of God, united under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so he begins, brothers, brothers, brothers. He's driving home a very important point in the original here. We are supposed to love and support. We are supposed to protect and pray and do all kinds of things for one another, for our brothers. But when our speech goes south, the wheels come off. So James is telling us slander has no place in the family of God. Slander has no place in the family of God. So he begins by saying, do not slander one another. So what is slander? We work hard here at Southside for developing a common language. Therefore, when we use a word, everybody understands the usage of that word. So let's begin by defining that word. What does slander mean? The Greek verb used here, katakaleo, means to say bad. Now listen carefully to this definition. I think this is fascinating. Here's what slander means. To say bad things about or to speak evil of, to run someone down, or to use harsh words about a person who is not present. Ever slander anybody, according to that definition? Huh. To say bad things about, to speak evil of, to run someone down, or to use harsh words without a person being present. That is the definition of slander. The verb only appears here, one time, and then again in First Peter, the only time in the New Testament. Now, James has shown us in verse 10 that the true believer lives in humility. Lives in humility. That's the verse preceding. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Remember that? Okay. 
So the genuine faith is always expressed in humility, which is the opposite of slander, right? Continually slandering and condemning others demonstrates to us uh, that there's something wrong here. We're disconnected from God. There's an unloving, there's an unregenerate heart. Slander has no place in the family of God. Hmm, I think we'd all agree. Now, katakaleo is a present active imperative. In other words, it's continual action. This is a command. Do not slander one another. It's an appeal to the will. Stop doing what you're doing. Now, this indicates this was happening. And so James is addressing it. Now, he says one another. That's interesting. That's a reciprocal pronoun used specifically here to indicate there's a verbal war going on that James is addressing. Here's what's happening. Some were slandering others, and the recipients were slandering right back against them. It's ugly stuff. What do you think we've been listening to for the last 18 months with the election? Slandering one another. James is addressing this. It has no part in the family of God. And it's going back and forth. They're volleying back and forth against each other. Stop slandering one another. It is ugly. It is ugly. Now, we've just come through a, a season, but I don't think our country is healed. And I don't know if we ever will be, to quite, be quite frank with you, because social media perpetuates slander. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but all you have to do is jump on Facebook for a minute, and you'll see people labeling, denigrating, name-calling. I don't care what you say. It is slander according to the biblical definition. And many, many who are claimed to be Jesus' followers are caught up in this. And so James would be addressing this very strongly if he were here in person, but that's why he's given us the word. Am I making my point? The Bible has much to say about slander. John MacArthur wrote this. The Old Testament denounces the sin of slandering God or men more often than it does any other sin. Chew on that one. I found that staggering. Staggering. The Old Testament, according to MacArthur, says slander is the number one sin mentioned in the Old Testament. We often don't register. That doesn't register with us. We're looking at all kinds of other sin, right? Big stuff. Ooh, ah, ugh. And wow. It kind of comes down, makes it personal. From Jesus to the apostle, the New Testament continually condemns slander. The entire Bible talks about the devastating effects of slander. I think we all know what they are. It annihilates friendships. Uh, we just had our young leaders group this morning, and we were talking about how uh, the election results, uh, people who have been childhood friends are now clashing on Facebook, just the name-calling and the derogatory destroying. It annihilates friendships is what it does. It leaves deep wounds. It spreads strife. It destroys people. It destroys families. It destroys relationships. How do I know? I've been on the receiving end of enough slander being a pastor for over 30 years. I've had my fair share of being slandered. I understand what it is. You want to know how else I know? Because I've slandered others. I've slandered others. We often overlook how easy this is to fall into. And we need to be reminded again and again. So we first come across slander in the Garden of Eden. Its source? Satan. Satan. Whose other common name is devil, which means slanderer. That's what the word means. Slanderer. Huh. Diabolos. 
Oh, how would you like to have fun with that name? Put it on the back of your pickup. Oh, yeah, Diabolos. Cool name, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it's the slander, the devil. It means a false accuser unjustly criticizing to hurt and condemn and sever a relationship. That's what he's about, isn't he? He wants to sever our relationship with God. He wants to sever your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your neighbor, with everyone else. He's here to divide and conquer according to Strong's concordance. Now, we know that slander will come from outside the church. Would you agree with that? Our society, our culture today is one of denigration. Uh, we like, again, to label, uh, to put people in a category, uh, to call them names, uh, to do this, to do that, to put them down. A uh, very negative, very hostile kind of environment. We know that that will come outside the church. That is to be expected. But slander from within the church is totally and absolutely unacceptable. James is saying, has no part in the family of God. Now, honestly, honestly, I don't think slander is much of a problem here. I don't. I don't hear a lot of it, but I don't go on Facebook. So uh, I don't see a lot of it. And I praise God for that, but we can always do better because I know what's lurking in my heart. It may not come out of my mouth, but I know what's lurking in my heart. And so I have to constantly be on guard to make sure this attitude of slander, maybe not expressed in the words that I use, but it's still down there in my heart. And it's the opposite of the way God wants me to live, right? Right? So, uh, if you're guilty, uh, form the line right behind me, because I am chief and foremost of sinners here. I understand that. And so, what we want to be aware of is how we do this better. Now, closely related to the sin of slander, James says, is the sin of being judgmental. Oh, maybe I should just skip over this because we don't have any problems with that here, do we? Oh, I'm judging you, sorry. Uh, again, James warns the person who is judging his brother. He says, knock it off. Knock it off. In our previous message on this topic from this past summer, we started by defining the word judge or judgment. Again, common language, very important. The Greek verb or noun, as it were, is krino. Krino. What does krino mean? It means to decide or distinguish good from evil. That's a very wonderful definition. Keep it simple. When we use the word judge in the Bible, it is to distinguish good from evil. In other words, what is the source? What is the origin of the words or the action? Is it good or is it evil? Is it from God or is it from the flesh or the devil? So when we talk about judging, that's how we use this word, to decide or distinguish good from evil. Okay, nice start, but I'm still a bit confused. We're not supposed to judge, are we? Can someone make sense of these verses then? God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Do you agree with that? Who spoke those words? Who? I think they're in red in your Bible. What does that mean? I'll give you a hint. Jesus, oh, always the right answer. It's awesome. Yes. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, right? But to save the world through him. After, we'll talk about this in just a minute. Now, wasn't Jesus' mission the exact opposite of judgment? Would you agree with that? You'd agree with that, right? God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save it, right? Right? Okay. Then why did Jesus say, for judgment I have come into this world? Why did he say that? If God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, why did Jesus turn right around and say, for judgment I have come into the world, and also the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son? If he didn't come to judge the world, is this a contradiction in the Bible? 
How do you put those together? Huh? Huh? Who said it? Okay, but who said the other word? In context. Context. You're right, Adam. You're right, John. Thank you. Both men are right. We always have to put a verse in its context. Always. Otherwise, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Put the verse in its proper context. In John 3, who is Jesus speaking to? A man named Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Pharisee. What else was he? Yes, very high ranking. So he had political and religious connection. A recognized leader in Israel. What did the Pharisees believe would happen when Messiah came? They believed the Messiah was sent to judge the enemies of Israel and wipe them out. God is the judge. They're the bad guys. The Jews are the good guys. He's going to wipe them out when Messiah comes. This is going to be great. Come, Messiah, right? His mission, the purpose of coming, was to pay the price for our sin. They missed the point. Not some kind of military general, but the suffering servant came so that he might pay the price for our sin. Now, some will believe, others won't. We just sang, I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one. I believe that. Some will believe, others won't. Some will embrace him as Savior. Others will stand before him as their judge at the great white throne. Read the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20. How about you? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Savior or judge? The choice is yours and mine to make. Have you made that decision for Jesus? Savior? Judge. He will judge. He will judge. Hmm. Okay, so say, I get that, but I'm still confused. What about us? Are we supposed to judge or not? Oh, you guys are quiet. You know I'm setting you up, don't you? So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Oh, boy, is that verse kicked around and abused. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. But then Paul turns right around in instructing the church in Corinth says, it certainly is your responsibility to judge. Huh? Do not judge. It certainly is your responsibility to judge. No, Google it. Maybe. Context. Correct. Context. Absolutely. In reading the full context, this passage in the Sermon on the Mount does not say don't judge. Read it in context, please. It says, rather, when you do judge, do it correctly. In other words, pull the beam out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye. Then you will be able to have that conversation. Do it correctly. Paul would back that up in Galatians 6.1. Dear brothers and sisters, if any... In other believers overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall in the same temptation yourself. So, are we supposed to judge or not? Well, for further study, listen to the message from July 10th this summer, right? And you can unpackage that thing if there's still some confusion there. But let's look at the second one. The skinny version is this. 
Jesus' followers are never to judge or sit in judgment on those on the outside of the church. True or false? True. What are we supposed to do when unbelieving sinners act like sinners? Hello. Love them. Pray, love, live out our faith, share our faith, be light to them. That's what we're supposed to do. Because what do sinners act like? Anybody here a sinner? Okay. Hmm. It's never, never, never our role responsibility to judge them or their actions, but to offer hope through Jesus. God will judge those on the outside, 1 Corinthians 5, 13. God will judge those on the outside. We are not the Holy Spirit. Anybody want to claim that role? Elected to that office? You want to be the Holy Spirit, right? No, we're not the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to judge, but to love. Okay? Now, those who aren't Jesus' followers often accuse the church, that's us, of being judgmental and hypocritical. I think often they have a valid point. I do. According to the Barna Group, among young people who don't go to church, 87% say they see Christians as judgmental, and 85% see us as hypocritical. Ouch, that hurts. Let me just ask that. Are there judgmental people in this room? Are there hypocrites in this room? Line starts right behind me. Starts right behind me. Hmm. Hmm. But hold on a minute. Doesn't the Bible say God is love? How do Christians justify this judgmental behavior then? How do we do this? Hmm. But on the other hand, we don't we do have the obligation to judge those inside the church. True? Is that what the Bible says? We have the responsibility to judge. In other words, distinguish good from evil. Where is this coming from? Inside the church. Now, if we look carefully at that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 5, which we're not, we will find that the church in Corinth had members who practiced all the sins, all the sins that Paul listed of the unbelieving world in 1 Corinthians 5. There was sexual sin in the church, greed, worshiping idols, abuse, drunkenness, cheating. They were all there. Now, all of us are capable of the worst sin. True or false? All of us do sin, true or false? True or false, the person next to you is a sinner. Okay, I'll give you that one. What's the difference? The difference is critical in our understanding. The Jesus follower will repent. The Jesus follower will repent. The Jesus follower will turn from that sin turn toward God in the way that he wants us to live our lives. The Jesus follower will be convicted, will repent from the words that were spoken, the attitudes that are harbored, and turn toward God to receive the attitude of Jesus Christ in us. That's the difference. Repenting. The world will not repent. The Jesus follower will sin, but will repent, will move closer to God's plan. His will, his desire to be holy like he is holy. Now we learn that Jesus is both truth and grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, very important. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, to unpackage that thought is amazing. Embracing truth without including grace leads to harsh legalism, just as grace without truth dissolves into compromise. And here's the equation. Here's the formula. Truth minus grace 
is legalism. What do I mean by that? It's harsh, it's hypocritical, it's the letter of the law. We flip that thing right around and we say, grace, let's just love everybody, love everything. Can't we all get along? Put the bumper stickers on your car. We could do this together, one people. But grace minus truth always will lead to compromise. That is lukewarm. It is lethargic. It is lazy. And what does Jesus do with lukewarmness? He will spit us out of his mouth. He can't stand. Be hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. Come on now. Come on now, he's saying. Now, it's much easier to end up on one side or the other. So, should we make this the grace side? Okay, all the grace people over here, all legal people over here, right? It's easy to end up on one side or the other. But the Bible encourages us, wrestle with it. You've got to, we have to embrace both God's love and justice. Now, following Jesus will begin to grind against a morally ambiguous culture. If we stand up for Jesus out there, it will grind against you. Why? Because it's totally opposite to the way the world is living. And if we're going to make that stand for Jesus, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. But what often fuels resentment is the experience many of us have had with misguided Christians. I I believe in my heart, I do, I do, that their intentions are right. Their execution is messed up. When someone hears things like, the Bible says you're a terrible sinner, you're going to hell if you don't repent and convert. They're hearing exclusively about God's justice. And again, I remind us, show me one place in the Bible Jesus speaks like that. Show me one. The only people that he talked about hell to were the Pharisees who claimed to know God but didn't and his own disciples to teach them. Never, ever, ever does he go up to an unbelieving person and say, you're going to hell if you don't change your ways. Never. Why? Because he is good news. He is good news. Hope, forgiveness, love, acceptance. Come on into the family. This is why we were created. Oh, I could preach that, but I won't. We've learned that justice is only one part of the equation. God's love is equally important. Let me summarize it this way. We are to judge for evaluation, but never condemnation. We have the responsibility, particularly church leadership, to judge for evaluation, but never condemnation. Is the source of this good or or is it evil? And we get this all twisted around. And it's confusing. It's confusing to the world because uh, we're acting the opposite of the way we should sometimes. And it gives us a black eye, and I get that. We can correct that. And James is saying to us, stop it, knock it off. Stop slandering, stop judging. Stop judging, condemning and slandering and judging others is a violation of the law of love that James mentions way back in chapter 2, verse 8. He says this, the royal law of love, yes, indeed, is good when you obey the royal love. Royal laws found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. By living out this very, very simple law that Jesus said, this is the expression of the Bible. We place ourselves under God's law. Rebelling then against the law is open rebellion against the law giver. God. And I remind you, if you rebel against the president of this country, who ultimately are you rebelling against? Better read Romans 13 again. Better read it again. Not saying we have to love it and accept uh, 
all the philosophy and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to submission, we are commanded. There is no question about this. And if you want to move to Portland, be an anarchist, go for it. But that is a direct violation of the Word of God. Clear? Okay. This is exactly what the slander Satan did in attempting to throw off God's authority with his five I will statements. I'm one of those who believes that Isaiah 13 is written as symbolic of Satan. Here's what Isaiah wrote. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will be God. <laughs> the desire to put ourselves on God's rightful throne has been at the essence of every sin ever committed by you and by me, that I will be God and he will not. No one will tell me the way to live my life. I will choose the way I want to live my life. Hmm. James goes on. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment of it. Ouch. Now this person indicates by actions, their words, their attitudes, I'm not only opposed to the royal law of love, I don't have to live it. I'm beyond it. I'm above it. In our selfishness and stubbornness, we desire to dethrone God and put ourselves there on the throne. But God is the supreme lawgiver and judge. But we want to rule in his rightful place. I don't want to run the universe. I have a hard enough time running my own life. Right? Why would I dare think like that? But we do. The original language is very literal. It says, one is the lawgiver and judge. I love that. One is the lawgiver and judge. Stresses that God alone is the supreme ruler and judge, not just of the universe, but over every heart that's seated here today. He is God and I am not. Believe it? Then say it. He is God and I am not. Now tell your neighbor that. Now tell him this. He is God, and you're not. Yeah, okay, now that we're all clear on that one, all right? God alone has the power to rescue us from our sin. Only God does. He is the supreme lawgiver, the supreme judge. We must choose his grace, or else we're going to face destruction by our choice when we say, I'm going to govern my own life. I'm going to govern my own life. In fear and reverence of this great and loving and holy God, rather than judging our neighbors, we're supposed to love them, right? Yeah. So James boldly asked, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who in the world do you think you are? Who died and made you king of the universe? That's what he's asking us. Very emphatic statement here. Who put you in charge? Anyway, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And I look in the mirror and I say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Judging, slandering others is the exact opposite of the humility that characterizes the genuine Jesus followers. Humble yourselves before the Lord. So let's search our hearts for any signs of slandering or judging others. It's tough because the Lord brings to my mind, whoa, whoa. Even if I didn't say it, I thought it. And I played with that thought, slandering others, judging others. What do we need to do? We need to confess it. What does confess mean? To agree, to agree. God, this is wrong. This is wrong. 
I've had this attitude. I've said these words. I've typed this thing on the keyboard. Whatever it is, we first must confess it to God, and then as he leads us, we may need to make it right with others because that's where authentic Christianity is lived out, when we make it right with others. Ooh, ooh. He is the king of the universe, and I am not. So one Sunday afternoon, young Isaac Watts, lived in the late 1600s, was complaining about the dry and lifeless hymns that were sung at church. Some things never change, by the way. His father, the pastor of the church, rebuked him and said, I'd like to see you write something better. (laughs) So he did. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death. Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. All for Jesus. Faith is invisible, but it will always be seen. Our commitment to God that we are truly, totally his can be measured. It can be measured. It can be measured by the words we speak. It can be measured by the attitude of our heart. It can be measured by our actions. Faith is invisible, but it can always be seen. This love demands my soul, my life, my all. Our commitment can be measured. Where are we with Jesus? God, forgive us. Forgive me for slandering others, hurting them, dividing, creating chaos. Jesus, may we be a church that's slander-free, where we honor God by our speech. Our commitment to God can be measured. It can be measured in many ways. It can be measured by what we do with what he's given us especially our most valuable possessions. That's our time and our money. Eric, would you come lead us as we present these visible, tangible measurements of our faith, our offerings to Jesus this morning?